Welcome to the MS Dev Show, episode number 114. This week, we talk with Lori Lalonde about localization and globalization, building a BitTorrent client in C Sharp, how becoming a pilot may be a better programmer, and Jason installs high definition cameras everywhere. This episode of the MS Dev Show is brought to you by Infragistics, providing tools and solutions to accelerate design, development, insights, and collaboration for any organization. This week, we're pleased to welcome back Lori Lalonde, Windows Platform MVP. She wrote a book on Windows Phone development. She is Xamarin certified and a Xamarin MVP. She's Microsoft certified. She's a conference speaker in the US and Canada. She's a blogger and a user group leader. Welcome back, Lori. Thanks. Thanks for having me back, guys. Yeah. So Carl was like, hey, should we have Lori back for? And I said, yes. <laughs> That's exactly how it went. It didn't yeah, even exactly. matter what it was. Like, it didn't matter the topic. We could talk about anything. Yeah. And then I don't know how I, I don't know if it was linked on Twitter or something, but I saw you speaking at uh, Xamarin Evolve and I watched that video and oh, man, that was really impressive. Like, great job. And And it wasn't even like the content or anything. You were just... You were so confident and comfortable on stage. I'm just, I'm so jealous. Thank you. Despite the technical difficulties, I cringe when I watch that back. No, you did. You did awesome though, because I would, I don't know. I'd try to make a joke and it would be a horrible joke. Uh, But you, you did a really good job. Like you were asking questions of the audience and you handled it really well. That was, it was good. I wouldn't, I wouldn't cringe. It was really good from my perspective. Because your your opinion when you're watching your own stuff doesn't count. <laughs> <laughs> I suppose. <laughs> I, I know I know that. Okay, Carl, uh, who do we have for the Infragistics Ultimate Winner of the Week? This week, the winner is Trish Curry. She was formerly a uh, guest on the show, but she also took the time out to tweet at us. Uh, f- when we were talking to James Montemagno for Xamarin Updates, we had shown off this demo uh, promotional mug that we actually ended up are going to be customizing and making MS Dev Show mugs out of. And she works happens to work for the company that we're ordering these from. So she says, I'll take one. Thanks for the promo of our promo mug. Yeah. And we're actually really excited to get these down there ordered. They're in development right now, production, whatever you want to call it. <laughs> whatever magic. Happens, yeah. Whatever magic happens that involves putting ink on mugs to make them look pretty. Um, that's what's yeah. happening right now. And we're excited for that. So thanks Kurt, uh, Trish Curry for, uh, Uh, being excited for that and tweeting at us. And if you would like to get mentioned on the show like Trish, send us an email to feedback at msdevshow.com. Comment on Facebook, YouTube, or Stitcher. And we really love those five-star iTunes reviews. Yes, we do. And we have a lot of them out there. So thank you guys so much. That's uh, just really an honor to get all those. Oh, yeah. Let's jump in the news. Let's see what's going on here. So building a BitTorrent client from scratch and C Sharp. Sounds pretty intensive, Jason. Yeah, this is... This is something totally that I would not do. <laughs> <laughs> so, but but uh, this, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, Carl. This one was really cool because it, it wasn't just like I did this; it's awesome. But yeah, he kind of went through like exactly the steps that he took and kind of reverse engineering the protocol, the file formats, and showed you step by step like what his thought process was, and then the code like side by side. So that's what I thought was really cool about this. I mean, not a lot of us would be like, hmm, I want to write a BitTorrent client. But like (laughs) he did, and he showed exactly, like I said, the code, the thought process, the steps involved to make it, you realize like, hey, if there's maybe not a BitTorrent client, but if you want to, you know, make something else out there, it's totally possible. Somebody else made it in the first place. A lot of times it is possible to go and, you know, do that same type of thing. You just need a little bit of, you know, prodding most, most of the time. And I think this was a really good article to just, you know, motivate me to think, you know, what are, what are similar things that I want to build or. Yeah. And, and I love, I love how documented this is. So this is more than just a blog post, right? So I actually did like a save as PDF to see how long this thing is. It's 77 pages of describing the code. And actually one of the coolest things I think out of this whole thing is just understanding the BitTorrent, uh, you know, protocol a little bit better. And it's actually pretty simple. I mean, it, it 
it breaks this down into blocks and there's different pieces. Um, and then it just shows how it, you know, it's basically sharing those pieces around, um, and then how it, you know, does hashes to, to do verification and things like that and to build up the file. Um, and then, you know, how it handles like dynamically adding and removing clients as, as, you know, new clients come in and drop off and those types of things. So I just, this is cool just to understand too, you know, how BitTorrent is working kind of under the scenes there. Uh, okay, software has diseconomies of scale, not economies of scale. Yeah, I, you know, a, a lot of us kind of, you know, we write a lot of code and, you know, we think, hey, we write this line of code and it ships out to all these different places. That's got economies mm-hmm. of scale. But if you actually look at what the metaphor really is, it's not the same. You know, if you want to compare it to something physical, this article mm-hmm. talks about like a gallon of milk. So, you know, when you make something, if you package more of it into one package versus, you know, the same amount into many multiple packages, that saves your production costs and gives you an economy of scale. Whereas software has the exact opposite. If we can write, you know, something small and ship it out everywhere, that's better for our economy of scale that way. So it's actually, it's not an economy of scale, it's a diseconomy of scale. So uh, if you want to hear it better worded, you probably want to read the article, <laughs> but you know, yeah. it's just one of those things you, you hear it a bunch. And if you don't take the time to think about it, you, you might be repeating it and it's, yeah. it's not entirely right. Yeah. It was funny. Cause the, the discussion we had before the show, <laughs> like, please don't mention this. So we were talking about, yeah, the, the milk carton. So the, the bigger the container, you know, the, the more the economies of scale, right? So the bigger the carton, or if you have an entire truck of milk, you know, obviously that's, you know, per gallon is super, super cheap to distribute at that point. Um, and then, and then the article talks about like, you know, you want to, with code, you want to be able to ideally ship, you know, like if you write one line of code, you want to ship that one line of code, you want to be super agile. Um, so I, <laughs> you know, I was just kind of thinking out loud. I'm just like, oh, this is basically like, you know, as you're milking the cow, you know, we want to get this to, to somebody to drink, like, like straight you know, in their mouth. A, you a, said straight, straight in their mouth, utter to mouth, uh, like, you know, as efficiently as possible. That's, that's what software is like. So, uh, the strangest, uh, analogy ever. That is pretty screwed up. <laughs> <laughs> And, uh, yeah, so that's some insight into, uh, into my, how my mind works. So, okay. so did he write this article because he was trying to promote the agile movement and get people away from waterfall? Was that the point of it? I, I think so. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. You, because waterfall like appears to be, uh, it, it seems to be sort of an economy of scale. Like, you know, if we just, if we pile all this stuff together and ship it as one big thing, then we've, we've achieved economies of scale, but that really isn't the case in software. That's, it's actually, um, it works opposite. Yeah. Okay. Uh, how becoming a pilot made me a better programmer. Yeah. So for a lot of different occupations out there that are entirely unrelated, there's a lot of concepts that flow over back and forth. Uh, you know, a lot of times you hear that being a musician and being a developer are, are, are two different talents that have a lot of crossover. Uh, but this uh, guy was training to become a pilot. And he said there's a few takeaways that he learned, even though being a pilot and being a developer are nothing alike, that he he thinks that really help both professions, like not treating, you know, systems as black boxes. Um, you know, if you're in a situation where you're having an emergency, you know, sometimes it does help under understanding what a carburetor is and how that works and how that's affecting you know, the problem that you're having. Kind of like if you understand HTTP and how it works and how it delivers packets across the internet, when you're having a problem, you know, that that helps bring that additional context in. So when you are having an issue, you know, it's not just like, well, I called HTTP client and I gave it my thing and now I don't know what's going wrong. You know, Mm -hmm. understanding what's going on underneath the hood really does help. And, you know, you know, it's, you know, sometimes you don't think of when you do cross training into other non-related areas, how much it can actually affect your main profession. Yeah, and when you're when you're flying and something goes wrong, I think one of the other things I'm I'm picking up out of this is having uh, backup instrumentation, even if it's not the same type of data. Like you just want everything available, and I think that's uh, you know the same thing you want in production software, right? So if something goes wrong, if you have no instrumentation, you know you're basically flying blind, as they say, um, and that's you know you're not that's not going to be a good situation. So have have the good instrumentation but then also think about okay when that fails uh what do i have for backup instrumentation so yeah lots of good parallels here so good read 
Uh, self-care matters. Pay yourself first. So this is the latest uh, post by Hans- Hanselman. Yeah. And this one was really kind of Im- important to me and kind of hit home because it happened at the same time where uh, I was out camping. I was taking time to be with my family and mm-hmm. uh, my appendix uh, was giving me problems. And I actually yeah. had to cut that short and, uh, you know, have that taken care of. But I also, you know, you know, there's part of me that I just wanted to rush back to work. You know, I wanted to, you know, I'm out of the hospital, I'm feeling fine. But, you know, I, I actually took a few extra days off to just be with my family to make sure that I, I was feeling a lot better, um, mm-hmm. you know, to kind of take time for me, take time for my family while I already had an excuse to be off, you know, make sure that I'm, I'm when I do come back, I can be as successful as possible. Yep, very and, and he didn't really cover that per se, but you know, it's a lot of those kind of, uh, you know, same concepts. He's saying, you know, like, you know, maybe you can't take time off per se. You can't afford an extra day of vacation, but maybe you can cancel a meeting or two. Maybe there's a few of them that you're there just there for support or they don't really involve you being a primary person. You know, maybe somebody else can cover it for you. Um, he had a really cool concept too of uh, paying yourself first. He said that he doesn't use credit cards and neither does his wife. They give themselves an allowance, which if they need to, they can get like a Visa card or an Amazon or an iTunes card. And I thought that was kind of cool. And, mm-hmm. and uh, not only that, but taking time out for each other. You know, they have set up date times, and not only date times with each other, but me times. Mm-hmm. You know, make sure that when you're off of work. That, you know, you have time that you're not just filling it constantly with other things. Sometimes it's easy when you have a family or kids to, you know, maybe you're a scout leader, maybe you volunteer at a church or something else, you know, that you're, you're not just constantly giving away. You're having a chance to build yourself up, too. Mm-hmm. Okay. And he says schedule massage, have your nails done, get a haircut. Yeah. Ho- well, hopefully you're getting <laughs> regular haircuts. I think the point I think the point was like self-care. I, I, some yeah. people I know aren't they're very uncomfortable with doing those things, but there's other ways they can take care of themselves, right? Mm-hmm. It's just like whatever you need to do to feel good about you and be you, just go do it. I mean, when he when he listed dance in there, I was like, yep, I do that. I dance all the time. Like, <laughs> I love it. It's 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 a, a release for me. So I could just be yeah. around the house looking like a goofball. I don't care. I can be in my car, be bopping to songs. I don't care. That's like a release mechanism for me. Yeah. I, I, he, yeah, that's he didn't explicitly say it, but I, you know, one of the things I got is don't feel guilty about taking care of yourself. Right. Yeah, that's probably the the biggest takeaway, honestly. Yeah. Well, especially as parents, like that's you do feel guilty if you know when you have little children, and you do take that time for yourself. It's you. I felt guilty doing that in the past, and my my children are grown now, but. Oh, back in the day, I felt uh, like so terrible if I was having a good time by myself. And all I thought was they could be here having fun with me. But yeah. it was really important to have that away time and just to kind of revitalize your your your, your batteries, like recharge your batteries. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. And then the last thing we we're going to talk about here was, uh, you know, so I, I bought a new house recently and uh, I installed a whole bunch of security cameras and Carl was asking about that. So I figured I'd just take the, take some time in the show to talk about that real quick. Um, and we'll actually have uh, links in the show notes on msdevshow.com to all of the hardware that I purchased. Um, but essentially I bought some Hikvision cameras. Um, it's kind of a funny name, but they, um, they're really good quality cameras. I've done a lot of research on this and I had the same brand at my last house. Uh, but with these new ones, these are actually a new model that just came out a few months ago and they're actually four megapixel. Um, and the quality on these things is just absurd. Um, you can, I mean, you can see like the finest detail in there and I'll see, um, Carl will pester me and I'll, I'll get him a, a good, actually, I think you have a, a picture Carl from the camera. Yeah. Um, so we can include that in the show notes as well. So you guys can see what I'm talking about, but it's just, it's just absurdly good quality. And then at night, uh, these cameras, uh, shoot out infrared and even in pitch black, like it, it looks like daytime almost. Um, the qual- the camera quality is really good. So these, these cameras are, are all POE cameras or power over ethernet. So the, uh, the, you know, you run a single cable to them, a single ethernet cable, and they actually get the power from the ethernet cable. Uh, you just need a power over ethernet switch. Um, and those cameras are, are, um, right now on Amazon, they're $114 a piece. Um, and they're weatherproof and all that. I mean, they're like IP 67 rated. They're, they're pretty hardcore. 
Um, and then the, the POE switch is about 50 bucks and we'll have a link to that as well. But I bought the TP link POE switch. So TP link has been a pretty reliable brand for me lately. Um, so I've, you know, I, I bought that brand of switch. So it has, it has actually eight ports on it. Four ports are just regular, um, you know, switch ports, and then four of them are powered. So you can essentially run four of these cameras on top of that. And then, um, uh, I had to buy some ethernet cable. I buy that. I always buy all my cables from mono price and they have really good quality, uh, cable. So I picked up a thousand feet of that for $81. Of course, I already had 2000 feet laying around, but I had to buy another thousand feet because I wanted to match the color of my siding. Cause I, <laughs> I did have to hide some, <laughs> did have to hide some wires like near the siding. And I wanted that all to match. And I had to buy some, some, uh, um, wire staples as well that were also the same color. So the way that this all works, you know, you can obviously go to Costco and buy like this whole security system in a box and do it that way. Uh, I like to do it the, the the geekier way. So I buy the software called Blue, or I should say I bought, I bought this software uh, years ago, actually called uh, Blue Iris, which is about $60. And um, this software, um, it basically, it's just, it's just amazing. Like it is like super, super sophisticated security software. So it will hook into, I think like up to 60 cameras, uh, but it'll look for all your IP cameras. It supports hundreds of different brands of cameras. And the, the whole point here is that I can just mix and match. So I actually have a Foscam Wi-Fi camera in my garage. Uh, I can use that. I can use my external cameras. I have this camera that I got for free at CES like eight years ago. Uh, just some really weird, you know, uh, firmware on this thing. And it even hooks into that. Um, it will hook into like pretty much anything that you can possibly imagine. And it lets you go in there and set up different motion areas for each camera. Um, but not only that, you can actually set up like different zones. You can actually set up like different eight different motion areas in the picture. So you can say, okay, if a person walks between zone B to C, um, or, you know, B to C to D or any kind of combination like that, you can actually set that up to record and it can, it can be buffering before that. So you can record all that. Anyway, you, you have to look at it. The list of fe- there's like thousands of features in the software, anything that you can possibly think of can also trigger an alarm system off of that or have an alarm system trigger the, the recording of the software. Uh, like I said, pretty much anything you can think of. So I've had people say like, why, you know, why do you go through all this trouble? And like, what, you know, are you just that paranoid? And, uh, so my old camera system at my last house actually paid for itself. Um, uh, there was basically two occasions. So the first one was we poured that, uh, concrete edging. I don't know if you've ever seen that, but, a you know, a company comes out and they put this nice concrete edging, uh, around your landscaping on your house. That truck literally drove away from, from, from our house. And then the mail uh, lady, the mail carrier came around and she drove through the the concrete edging that had just been poured. So it was wet cement. She drove through it um, and then, you know, drove away as she delivered the mail. Um, you know, so that was uh, um, to get that replaced was $300. But I was able to file an insurance claim and say, hey, I have this on video. And then the other instance was um, I had an HVAC company come out to fix our furnace. The furnace was actually under warranty. So all they would do is charge for labor. They drove, they drove to my house. They sat in the driveway for 15 minutes. They came in the house, took 10 minutes to replace a part on it, went back out in the driveway, sat there for 15 minutes and then drove, drove away. They sent me a bill for an hour and a half of work. Uh, So I called them up and I said, okay, this guy, the actual time that he was out of his van, like actually working on this job was 10 minutes and I have it on video. And they were like, oh, geez, you have, okay, it's on video. (laughs) Here's your refund. So, you know, for, for those types of situations, it's pretty handy. And then, you know, in, in our new house here, the, the garages just tend to be smaller. I had, I had an insanely huge garage at my last house, but now we have a small garage fitting, uh, both vehicles inside is technically possible, but, um, uh, realistically is not really an option. So one of our vehicles now has to sit on the driveway and, uh, there have in the past been break-ins, uh, into vehicles in the area. So, you know, that's the type of situation where, you just want to have a video so you can go to the police and say, you know what? I have like, you know, a crystal clear picture of this person's face and you can see them clearly breaking into my vehicle and the police will love you if you're able to supply that to them. So it's just peace of mind for that. Um, so I don't know. Do you guys have any questions on that? Well, it's pretty amazing because we have we have uh, security cameras throughout the house, but they're all indoor, but they point yeah. towards the uh, all the point, points of entry of our right. house. Right. And we do have an extra one that I made sure that we, we bought, which is a puppy cam, which just 
oh, focuses yeah. on the dog because yeah. I had to have that. It was just an absolute must. Yeah. Um, I absolutely love it for, like you said, peace of mind. And also, yeah, it's not just about worrying about people breaking into your house. I mean, we have people coming in and out of our house all the time. We have a dog walker that comes throughout the day when we're not home. We have yeah. um, cleaning ladies that would come in and out of the house. And it was really interesting because we had a similar situation where the cleaning ladies came in and they were supposed to be here for three hours and they were in and out in 45 minutes. And <laughs> oh boy, you can tell, I didn't even have to come home from work to know this because I was getting notifications on my phone when we also have a door lock, which is a, a keypad. And we have specific codes for each of them. So I get notified when they unlock the door, who unlock the door, when they come in. I also get notifications from the camera of any movement. So I see three still images of the people uh, coming in and out of the house. Yeah. And, and we can also go in and, and watch the video after. Mm -hmm. But uh, so at work, when I saw the notifications come in, I saw that they had come in and then they had left. I thought it was a joke. And so I actually called the cleaning company and I'm like, uh, are your ladies done already? Cause it's been 45 minutes and you guys were supposed to be there for three hours. <laughs> uh, I paid for a full clean today and I was absolutely irate about it, but yeah. I was at work and I was able to handle it and they came right back <laughs> <laughs> and they put in the time they were supposed to, and they, they cleaned what they were supposed to, but, um, and I didn't have to come home at the end of the day and be surprised to have that added stress mm -hmm. of, of adding a note onto my you know, list of, oh, I have to call them in the morning and complain. No, it was handled immediately. So yep. it, it saved me on a few instances like that. Or when the dog walker showed up late and I'd call them and say, hey, you guys aren't there yet. Do you need me to just go home um, to take out the dog? Because I'm very particular about how long she stays in her crate for. Yeah. And I really don't like the idea of her being in a crate too long. So, um, so yeah, those for those instances, I found it completely useful. Mm -hmm. And there was one time I actually caught on video or and on those cameras, my dog making a jailbreak from her crate. <laughs> oh, was super amazing. Yeah. So I was able to like leave the office <laughs> and I like to pretend I left like, you know, the office very cool and calm. Like, okay, I'm just going to be back in a few minutes. <laughs> but I didn't. I like, I saw it come in and I was like, oh no. And I'm like, I have to go. I will be back. <laughs> and then I like, yeah. I booted out of the office and I was only like five minutes away from the house. Luckily yeah. got here and our clean basket of laundry that was nicely folded <laughs> and put down <laughs> done. Like she, she, and she was laying in the middle of it when I came in the house smiling, you know, this big, cause she's a Samoid. So she always looked mm -hmm. like she's smiling and she just had this big goofy <laughs> grin on her face. And I'm like, Oh God. <laughs> yeah. So. Yeah, so yeah, it's I good for that kind of it. stuff. Yeah, I have a video too, you know, from the from our last house, like a storm where the the kid had the kids had this like house thing, you know, this like plastic house that we have, and like it was blowing away, and you know, so you get some cool footage like that as well. Um, but yeah, I have I have one more side of the house where I have a camera arriving, so I'll have I have four um, power over Ethernet cameras, basically covering every side of the house. So that, uh, yeah, something does happen, then I'm covered. And like I said, I have one in the garage. I really don't have any in the house, but I didn't think to have one kind of pointing toward the, uh, uh, you know, like the back door, you know, something like that. So, yeah. So I think this is this is a great way of doing it because um, it gives you like the ultimate flexibility. Now, if you want, if you just want this all handled for you, then just go get like Dropcam or Nest or something like that and just pay them a monthly fee. Uh, but this has no monthly fees. Um, ultimately I think this, this is cheaper in the long run, but you know, I had to go through it and fiddle with this stuff, but I get, you know, like super high res video from all these cameras and, and it works, it works pretty good. Nice. Okay. Well, let's finally talk to Lori. Cause that's, that's why we're here. Right. <laughs> I don't know. I'm enjoying this conversation. This <laughs> yeah. awesome. Let's just, let's just talk about fun stuff the whole time. We do a couple of those episodes. So if you want to come back for one of those, that would be awesome. Oh, we'll just have, yeah. yeah. We'll just have a, you know, random stuff episode and those end up being popular too. So people, people like it when we talk about nothing in particular. <laughs> so let's do a horrible episode where we talk about something specific. Uh, <laughs> oh, learning. With, we got to learn with that setup. today. Yeah. So let's, let's talk about uh, localization and globalization, which is, you know, one of those things where it's like, you know, you wish you didn't have to deal with it. We all do. Um, so I think everybody wants to just understand how to do it better and, and, you know, or we should be it. doing it. Yeah. Well, yeah. Well, yeah, you absolutely should be doing it. Uh, not enough people do it. Um, but you know, hopefully we can try to make it a little bit easier for people and get them up to speed. So I guess, first of all, Laurie, what is localization and what is globalization? 
Okay. Well, localization is uh, setting up your, well, I guess in the terms of developing an application mm-hmm. is setting up, setting up your application to support multiple languages. And then globalization is more so to also support the different formats like date, time, left to right, uh, right to left. So these are things that, especially in English speaking uh, countries and cities that, you know, we often overlook that because we just assume everybody around the world speaks English. And I've mm-hmm. been guilty of this. I've, this is, I've been an afterthought time and again for me. And just recently, like, I guess, you know, now that I'm doing mobile applications and uh, you're really responsible for the markets you're pushing it out to and who you're targeting, that's beca- that's come more to the forefront of, mm-hmm. you know, now as, as a, you know, you're not just working for a company that's going to tell you when is a good time to implement multiple languages. Now you're working for yourself um, and you're putting out applications that people are going to use around the world. So you might want to, you know, be thoughtful about who you're targeting and what language they speak. Um, and, you know, if you don't want to target multiple languages right now, that's fine. But uh, so I kind of put together this whole session, which I've delivered at quite a few user groups already that's been really popular, of uh, the things that you should think about, you know, and how to architect your application just to set it up for localization, even if you're only supporting English for now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and yeah, I think it's it is nice. It is like, quote unquote, like nice to, to do it uh, for people, you know, just to say, Hey, um, you know, we do support your language, but I think, I think even more importantly than that, there's, there's a lot of cases where, um, you know, there's just like huge market opportunities, you know, the U S market in, in, you know, depending on what your app is or what you're trying to sell could actually be like a tiny portion of your total addressable market. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So that to me, to me, that's the biggest thing too, is like, there's actually monetary incentive as well to, to do this. And then, you know, what we're talking about too, the, you know, we, you mentioned, um, the, the number formats and everything. So, you know, for the, hopefully everybody, uh, you know, that's listening knows this, but I guess if you don't now you will, you know, there's a lot of places that use, uh, they enter, they, they swap the, the comma and the dot for numbers. Um, you know, they use different symbols for different types of currency, uh, date formats are different everywhere. Uh, that's yep. just an absolute mess in the entire world. And actually what I end up doing um, just because it's, it's logical to me and, you know, I'm kind of a geeky developer, right? Uh, anytime I write a date, I always do a uh, year, month, day. Cause pretty much everybody, there's a couple of things like every, everybody, when, when it's written that way, I think everybody reads it properly. And then the other thing is it's, um, it's, it's sortable, right. In file systems. So, um, you can just, you can, you know, make sure you pad, you zero pad each number, but it makes it so that I can sort everything. Hmm. Interesting. <laughs> yeah, I, I learned that that was back in my uh, GE days. Um, <laughs> it was my my boss at the time. He was uh, he was saying that 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 number four, like we just use that for everything, because like I said, it was um, there was no confusion, because if you if you write because in the US, we do day. No, what do we do? Three. We do month, day, year, which makes no logical sense whatsoever. Right. Um, and in some countries, wh- it's day, month, year. Yeah, exactly. And and the problem is if if the day is like April zero first. three, yeah, yeah, zero, yeah, zero three slash you know zero four slash you know sixteen, like the sixteen is an amb- ambiguous. Actually, it would have been like back in, in like the year oh five, right? Uh, but you look at that and you're just like, I you have you can't you there's no way to infer what the person actually meant by that. So if you do a four digit day, so you do two zero one six dash, you know. Zero seven dash. I don't know what today's eighteen dash eighteen. It's less ambiguous and it's sortable. Well, anyway. it's also less ambiguous because there's no month eighteen. So you just used a terrible example there. <laughs> <I'm> <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> you get the point though. Yeah, no, totally, I get it. Mm-hmm. But no, it's it's really neat, and um, I I, sp- I speak about it specifically on. Um, especially with mobile app development. I mean, it's set up already to make it so easy for you to uh, architect your applications to support localization. Um, With the Android, it's like just a built-in system of, you know, as long as you put your uh, strings file, which is like, which is contains all your translations, it's just an XML formatted file, as long as you put it in a certain directory, um, and then you reference all the strings in your, in your layouts, um, just by a unique ID that you gave your string translations, it just pulls it all in. Like there's no code necessary, which is amazing. So it reminds me of, uh, you know, we can't hear now. We can't hear you, Lori. There we go. You're back. Yep. Yeah. Can you hear us? Yeah. Where did I drop off at? Oh, it was just like a few seconds ago. Okay, good. We got the XML and the IDs and all that good stuff. 
Okay. So yeah. So the Android system just kind of pulls it all in and there's no code necessary when you're referencing your strings that way, which is really nice and it's super easy. Mm -hmm. um, and then with iOS, it's the same thing. There's a convention to it. You have uh, a key value pair file. It's just a you know text file, but uh, it's dot strings is the, the suffix for it. And as long as you include all your translations in that file, and then you just pull it in through code and iOS, then you're off to the races. And then for .NET developers that are targeting Windows, you know, there's ResX um, support in .NET. So mm -hmm. they should already be comfortable with that. Um, so I think the, what I start off with is just don't hard code your strings. You know, architect it in such a way that you're pulling them in from a, a resource file of some sort. And the systems are already in place to handle pulling that in. Uh, and then I also talk about other options for... Um, providing those translations to your application. Uh, there have been situations where uh, clients are prefer JSON uh, as the, the, the resource file format. Mm. Uh, and we download that JSON file from a web, uh, web service um, at runtime. So we're not packaging all the languages up at runtime or, or, or at once when we publish to the store. We just package it with the default language. And if they switch languages in the app, then we pull down... Um, the, the language that they want. So if that way, if they're supporting 184 languages, we're only packaging the one JSON file for the default language. And then we only pull down the one that they want after that. Infragistics, Ultimate UX and UI Tools, and Enterprise Mobility Solutions, SharePlus and Report Plus, enable high-performance apps on any device, faster data insights, simplified collaboration, and market-leading security, all backed by comprehensive support. With Infragistics Ultimate UX and UI Development Toolkit, you can ensure mission-critical applications delivering a superior user experience on the desktop, web, and native device environments for iOS and Android. With the latest BI tools, wow your users with dashboards providing the data insights that they need when and where they need it, all at a low total cost of ownership. Try it today. Download a free trial at infragistics.com and follow them for the latest updates in UX and UI development, reporting, and collaboration at Infragistics on Twitter. And remember, each week, if we pick your comment on the show, you will get a free copy of Infragistics Ultimate UX and UI Toolset. So in the beginning, I mean, you you had mentioned like you, you can just worry about this later, but I mean, is it, should I just should I be worrying about this? Like from the beginning, like, cause I'm just terrible with this. Cause I always, whenever I start writing code, you know, I'm all excited and I'm, I'm, I'm focusing on what I'm focusing on. And, um, you know, I'm always thinking like, Oh, there's probably just like one line of code I can call that'll get me the, the localized strings. So am I just being like a horrible dev by not using that? Should I just be using that from the start? Should I go out and do that research and figure out what line of code I should be calling? Um, it's yeah. It's it's not that you're a horrible dev. I mean, we all just kind of get excited when we when we start coding and we start yeah. just kind of we're off to the races. But when you find yourself hard coding strings in your layout files uh, or in code, stop yourself and just think, no, this is going to be more work for me down the road. Mm -hmm. um, and for, train yourself and force yourself into a situation where you're going to practice the the configuration of it. And so now, you know, there's no hard-coded strings. So just kind of make it a rule for yourself as a developer. I'm not going to put hard-coded strings in my layout files or views or storyboards or whatever uh, platform you're targeting that's, that they reference. They're called different things. But I'm going to put my tr strings in a, a, a resource file, and then I'm going to access that. And I know it's a little bit of work up front, but you save yourself so much headache down the road when you mm -hmm. do need to support multiple languages um, because pulling out those strings manually as your application grows becomes more work and you're going to miss things and yep. it becomes and it becomes quite of a headache and when you're thinking localization as well um, if you have that at the forefront of just your your formatting and your architecting your application in that way you're also thinking oh I shouldn't be using fixed lengths for these text fields because in different languages, they can translate to different sizes. So what could be one line, a one line sentence in English could be a multi-line sentence in another language. Mm -hmm. So you have to be really uh, aware of not setting fixed height or fixed uh, width on your, on those fields and just allow the, the sizing um, to naturally like expand or collapse as your, um, as the, the translation needs to be. So those are, so there's all, there's, it kind of, it's, it, 
pulling out the strings as a stepping stone, it's the first step. The second step is thinking, how are the different ways could this be rendered if it, if it translates uh, in a longer phrase or a shorter phrase? And then you have to be cognizant about that and designing your views so that you're not, you're not in a situation where text is going to get cut off. Mm-hmm. And then you have to start thinking, okay, well, eventually there could be left to right, right? You know, now we're doing left to right. That's the standard. But there could be languages that support right to left, right? You know, Middle Eastern countries, especially right to left. So then you, you have to start thinking about how does your view affect that layout? Um, so I think it, it makes you more aware um, of what you're doing and how you're representing things in your view as well when you start thinking in those terms. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I have a question too. So you, you said like you should put, you know, first step is to move all of your strings into your resource or strings file. But, you know, in, in some languages, you know, if I want to have like dynamic content in the middle of a string, let's just say we have a countdown app where we're mm-hmm. counting down minutes to something, you know, I might put in there like, you know, you have, and then like some, some sort of placeholder that'll get swapped out minutes remaining. And in some languages that might be different. So how do I handle like when I want to dynamically insert different, you know, different content in there that in a language, you might need that in different places in the sentence. Exactly. And I do touch on that when I talk about it in my session. Okay. Um, so you don't want to, the, what, what developers tend to do initially is translate the sen- the sentence in parts and that's wrong because it does translate right, differently. Right. I always felt like that was wrong, but I've done it. <laughs> yeah. I've, I mean, we've all been guilty of it. We're all, you know, we've all had those, you know, shameful moments where we've done things like that. We know where we're wrong, but, um, essentially just have the entire phrase as your one string translation. And in the, in the spots where you want to substitute in values, you just use the standard placeholder format that we do in .NET, which is the squiggly brackets zero, squiggly brackets one. And then when you're pulling that translation out, you know, obviously you're going to have to pull it out in the code behind and do a string format on it and pop in the values that you want, right? So that's essentially how it should be handled um, when you have situations like that with dynamic content. Mm -hmm. And then one question I had was around like cultural differences. So, you know, like I I can imagine things that would like offend other people, but um, the, the other big thing I had, I had heard this from a teacher in college and I don't know if this was true at all. Um, I, I'm less likely to believe people now. Um, but, but she was saying that the, in, in, in some country, and I wish I remember the name of it and I'll have to, I'll have to see if I can do some research on this to like, you know, verify this story or see if it's on Snopes. But there was a country where what they do is they, um, um, you know, for food items, whatever, whatever the food item is. So like if it's, um, spaghetti, like they are required to have like a picture of the spaghetti on the, on the container. Right. So like you're in the grocery store and like, you can see exactly what's in the containers. Like, okay, this is this thing. And I, I guess they were like horrified because like Gerber entered that market and they have like the picture of the baby on the baby food. Right. And it's not a picture of baby food. It's a picture of a baby. Um, and people were like, Oh, like, why are you selling, you know, it looks like you're trying to sell baby at the grocery store. Um, so again, I, you know, I haven't been able to verify that story, but you know, now I'm always like worried about, um, inadvertently offending like an entire culture with, with something like that. Cause I, you know, I just, I don't understand the rules of every place. So have you seen any cases where that like happens in software or in, are there any considerations like that? You know, are there countries where I don't know, like too much information on a form is, um, you know, for some reason is a bad thing or I don't know, certain colors. I don't know. I can't even think of the, what the actual scenarios would be, but have you ever seen anything like that? Well, the things that I've been aware of as far as the differences among countries, especially when you're publishing the app, you're made aware of it every time when you're selecting the markets is mm-hmm. to be aware of content that could be deemed offensive to them. Yeah. Um, and they, they, they generally list out the countries where there are restrictions on the type of content that can be delivered to those countries. Mm. I don't remember off the top of my head the list of um, topics <clears throat> or the countries that were involved. Uh, mm. But I do remember seeing that every time I would have to publish an app, um, it was to the Windows uh, Store. And uh, there are certain countries that you do have to be cognizant of the type of uh, content you are delivering and do so, do more research on that, as well as, um, oh, what was my thought? I had a thought and then I just <laughs> lost it. Oh, well. 
but yeah, so that, so that there is that. And there, I mean, and even like how you're dealing with data. Yeah. I mean, each country has restrictions on how you use data or, you know, or, or where you store that data and depending on the type of right. application it is. So you really have to, and that kind of gets into privacy laws and uh, other, other areas uh, that you have to be cognizant about for sure. Well, I, I think one thing that goes to Jason's question though, is I, I know somebody who had an app rejected. It was a pretty innocuous app, but he had an in-app purchase, essentially a tip jar. And he said, buy me a beer. Well, in a lot of Middle Eastern countries, alcohol's oh, yeah, a, alcohol's illegal, so he ended up having to switch that out to you know buy buy me a latte or, or a cup of tea or something. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah, that makes yeah, sense. It's it it's definitely tricky, but that you know that's that's the nature of dealing with um, you know when you're when you're out there and you want to reach multiple markets and in areas that you're you're not aware of what their traditions or their cultures are. It is difficult. It's like a it's a tightrope, and a lot of the times you're going to learn by trial and error. Mm-hmm. So, you know, how do time zones and like daylight savings time, you know, how, do, how does that relate to localization and globalization? Oh, my God. It's why I have gray hair. <laughs> <laughs> like, I don't think there's a good answer for that. Like, I don't think anyone's figured out how to do uh, date time properly in all no, of no, the there's a flag regions. now in your program. It, there's a Boolean like in the project property. You just set that and you're good to go. <laughs> oh, yeah, I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> it's terrible. It's and, and I've spoken with people at like uh, very, very public companies that you think they would have mastered date time and the developers shamefully, you know, admit to me they haven't mastered date time yet or, you know, uh, dealing with time zones. There's actually, you know, and I, I can't name those names at all, but I, I've had quite a quite a lot of interesting conversations around that topic. And I'm telling you, whoever solves that problem, they're like, they can charge a lot of money yeah. for their, their, their solution. I'm telling you. Yeah. I'm going to use this time to push my agenda of abolish time zones and daylight savings time. <laughs> abolish it all. Seriously, seriously, <laughs> get rid of all of it. It's such a, <laughs> it's such a hassle. And I still like, even, even when you do it correctly, you know, like in, in outlook, you schedule you know, I had a meeting scheduled. I think I've talked about it on the show before. I had a scheduled meeting, a scheduled meeting with somebody in India. It was at a time that was perfect for both of us. And then DST came around and now it was at, you know, totally awkward times and just totally screwed it up. So I, it, sometimes it's not even possible, I think, to, to deal with those things properly. No. Um, so I've heard, I've heard that, uh, I think it was, uh, yeah, it was coding whore. It was, uh, Jeff Atwood. He said that Turkish is the best language you use for testing. Is that, is that your experience? Have you heard I that? have I have never heard that and I have never ever <laughs> targeted that language so I have no idea. And yeah. and what was his basis for that? So so first of all like they're the, everything is just wonky in Turkish. Um I'm probably offending them now but uh so they like their their dates are form you remember we were talking about that. So they do day dot month day dot year. And then, um, you know, they do, um, so the commas and the dots are switched. If you take a string and to lower it and then to upper it, you might get back a different string because they have, they have certain letters that in uppercase they have certain accents on. So if it's like, he shows like integer all caps to lower to upper, you get a dot on top of your eye. (laughs) Interesting. Yeah, so he's actually got a logo here. Pass the turkey test. <laughs> <laughs> That's uh, awesome. You need to send me this link. I need to. I need to see this. Okay, I think yeah, that would be in the email that uh, Carl sent you at the last second. Um, yeah, and that I didn't have time to look at. Yeah, exactly. Thanks, thanks Carl. <laughs> Very professional. Here. <laughs> and then uh, it will. We'll have that in the in the show notes as well. But I think that the point is that basically uh, Turkey has. Has all of the all of the um, things that could go, or that all I'm trying to think of the best way to say this, all of the things that get complicated when you're dealing with these these issues, they all happen to occur uh, in Turkish. <laughs> so by you by basically testing in Turkish, you're you're covering yourself pretty well. And do they have double double byte? I don't think they have double byte characters though, do they? So maybe you have to pick like you know um, like Chinese and Turkish or something like that, and then you probably have it covered. Yeah, that's that's strange. Yeah, chi- Chinese is a difficult one. I know that. Yeah. Oh God, but yeah, um, yeah, because yeah. you have to. Have, you also have to have a font, he said, he right? He said the other nice thing about Turkey is it's similar enough to other Latin alphabet that it's not like a gigantic engineering nightmare. So like if you use like hmm. 
like Chinese or, you know, that one's quite a bit different. Or if you use some of the Middle Eastern ones, they're, you know, right to left. So there's other engineering things to work with. Whereas if, you know, if you want to get most of your headaches out of the way, it's similar enough that you won't have to like re-architect your app significantly if you haven't done it right from the beginning. But it's also goofy enough where you're going to hit all those main pain, you know, those pain points for testing. Mm-hmm. Years ago, I was installing, uh, like I was setting up images for testing and I was installing, I think it was like Windows 2000 and then it was uh, Windows uh, XP. And so I'd have to install in every different language. And, and I, I actually, I memorized uh, the Windows install sequence. So I could actually install uh, Windows in any language. I didn't have to read any of the prompts. I could sit there and hit next and put in the key and all that kind of stuff without without even thinking about it. Uh, what was kind of interesting, I think it was... I think it was with Chinese, um, the, the characters in windows, I didn't realize this exists, but it actually has a pop-up, like an, an extra application that would let you draw your own characters. So you can actually like draw your password. You could draw like a smiley face and that could be your password. I thought that was pretty wild. That's neat. Yeah. I mean, that's, yeah, that's, I mean, that's gotta be really challenging to, to (laughs) work with that. So, you know, we talked about some of the tools you mentioned, like, you know, it's just, it's, it's built in. Um, and when I was, uh, at a previous job, like a long, long time ago, I actually wrote custom tools to do all of the globalization and localization. So it would actually export from a database, all these, um, you know, text prompts, and then we would send them off to somebody to get translated. They would come back and then we would, I had a little tool that would put it back into uh, our database so that we could ship it with the, with the product. Um, I got to imagine though, that there's, there's better tools out there than, than, you know, this like custom in, in house thing that I built. So like, what kind of tools are there for me to do this? And, and I guess the other question on that is, do those tools then, you know, do they, are they part of services that let you get your, you know, these strings translated or how does that whole thing work? What does that whole process Uh, look like? Awesome. So, well, for tools for managing, and that's a big question is for sure. Like that's, that's something everyone wants to be aware of is mm-hmm. that the tools that you want to use for translating, dep- it depends on what format of uh, resource file that you're using. So for Android and iOS, there really isn't a, a tool that I found. Uh, I mean, one's an XML format, one's a key value pair. But with .NET and ResX files, there's a tool called ResX Manager. And it's really cool because there's a standalone application but it also there's also a Visual Studio plugin. So as a developer, I have the Visual Studio extension for ResX Manager installed in my Visual Studio I- IDE. Mm-hmm. And so when I'm looking at the resource files um, and I want to know which languages uh, have the translations and which ones are missing, I just load up ResX Manager. It automatically picks up the resource files in my solution and it shows me um, it in a spreadsheet format. And each column is essentially a language and each row is essentially mm-hmm. the string translation. And anything that's missing a translation, that cell is in red. So it's easy to see where the, the missing translations are and where to fill them in. Um, and as you, as you change a translation in, that, um, in the ResX Manager, it changes it in the file. And you can add new languages from there um, pretty easily. And so it's very intuitive for developers to use, but also for translators to use. So the translators can download the, the standalone extension. So when you email off your set of resource files to them that are ResX format, they can just load up, load up ResX Manager, point to the directory that those resource files are in, and they can work with it just like it's, it's an Excel spreadsheet. So okay. they don't have to learn what the, you know, how to format XML. They don't Perfect. have to learn how, uh, what, you know, because sometimes that, that happens where they, the fi- they, they format things incorrectly when they're trying to follow that XML format or ResX format when they're trying to hand do it, hand um, manually uh, modify the translations. And it, mm-hmm. And you have one thing out of line there and things break. And imagine going through a resource file that has like a hundred translations or more in it. And it is painful to find out like where things are going wrong. So, so that's a really good tool to use. Um, As far as uh, if you want to have a tool that automatically translates for you, uh, if you don't want to go through translators, there's the multilingual app toolkit. Uh, That's uh, something that you, that's also an extension you can add um, install in visual studio and a lot of Windows phone developers were using it because that kind of uh, was promoted a lot when uh, when we were in the midst of Windows phone development. But it still applies when you're when you're working in Xamarin, your cross-platform projects. Uh, you can still create those uh, ResX files and 
get your multilingual app toolkit loaded and then pick the language you want it to translate to and it'll translate as best as it can. I believe it uses the Bing uh, translation uh, engine behind it. I believe that's what it does. So. Carl's nodding, so that, that must be a yes. <laughs> so it may it may not translate perfectly. There may be things that are a little bit off, but if you can't afford to pay for a translator um, to get full translations, I mean, that's a good starting so, point. And, and, and trust me, if you have something translated wrong, someone will tell you and you'll, 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 you'll get, you'll get that feedback so, yeah. and you can always correct it. So I, I know that there's translating services that you can, you know, like say, translate this English into, you know, whatever language. But if, if I gave it, um, like the output, would it be cheaper for them to verify that? Is that something that's possible to do? You know, that's a good question. And I guess that you, that's a deal you'd have to make with a translator or the company that yeah. you're going with. Right. I mean, yeah. if you get a freelance translator, I bet you, you could work out a good rate. Yeah. But I you know, like, it probably costs way more to, to sort of do that verification. If they do the blind translation, I mean, then this is so quick for them. Yeah. yeah I mean, but, 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 but if they can, like, I mean, if you could work out a rate where you're like, well, I already have it translated. Can you just kind of read through and make sure it's correct? I think that would be less time. Actually. I don't think it would be more time. It's, it's, it's quicker and easier to correct spelling mistakes and grammar mistakes or miss, you know, words that are not used right rather than actually typing it all out from scratch, I think. But I don't know. It's, I don't know that their business model and how they work, but it would be good to to try. I mean, I just thought of something too. So sorry for putting you on the spot, but like, have you ever seen anybody just store like their translations on GitHub then? And let, you know, just let somebody do a pull request to fix a typo. Like an open source. Yeah. Uh, I haven't seen that, but that would be cool. Yeah. Why not? That. Why not open source your translations? The, and then if you're missing a language, I, let somebody. I know that it. there is a site where you can give them your resex and it's basically, you can ask for it to be crowdsourced. It's not guaranteed to be yeah. fulfilled, but I know that there's a site out there that can do that. Yeah. But I'm thinking of like the step after that too. Yeah. Like it's out there and maybe there's some missing or some that are just incorrect. That is cool having it in GitHub though. Yeah. Well, and someone at a recent event I went to, actually, someone rec- like me- recommended that wouldn't it be neat if there was uh, a standard set of files in all the languages that had all the common words that we use in every application, and that everyone and so it's just available via open source. So wouldn't it like because there's always the standard like search how well, you can't translate by word by word though, right? You have to translate no. a phrase. No, but there's oh, I see most what you're saying. The, okay. Right in most applications, you have the, the the standard commands, right? Yeah, and a lot of the common phrases. And someone just said, "Wouldn't it be amazing if that was like open sourced and already done in every language?" And then that's those are like a handful less of trans like translations you have to worry about or you know, right. whatnot. And Absolutely. I don't know. I just thought that was kind of neat. But yeah, it would be neat to have a uh, if you could if you open sourced your translations and you're like, hey, you know. Yeah. contribute to this that would be amazing i have to have somebody send in send us a mail if you guys are aware of uh, some of those efforts going on in the community that'd be kind of neat to see because because i because i know that google translate doesn't get it right 100 percent of the time and i'm sure bing is the same way yeah. i remember when my daughter was getting a tattoo and she she had this phrase that she wanted it to say in arabic and because it, it's, it's a phrase my mom used to always say to her mm-hmm. and so it's kind of like in, in memory to my mom and um so because we are lebanese and so she wanted to get it written in Arabic writing. So she went on to Google Translate and okay. she's like, oh, this is what it is. And I'm like, you know what? I'm like, how about I just send no. that to my cousins and <laughs> see what they say? Like, Because I have cousins who know how to read uh, Arabic. Yeah. And so the, my one cousin replied back and he was like, that absolutely does not say what you think it says. <laughs> And well, so the quick way to prove it is to like translate it and then translate it back. Yeah. <laughs> right. And, and if, it, if it, if it, if it's like something, well, it, it, and that's, that's just like one test. I mean, that will just tell you if it's horribly wrong. Um, but even if that's right, that still doesn't show you that it's right. Yeah. So we were lucky that we kind of had our, her tattoo sentence, you know, crowdsourced by my relatives yeah. <laughs> and they were able to fix it. And so we got a proper translation, um, for her and she got the tattoo and it looks amazing and she's so proud of it. She shows it off all the time, but can you imagine, you know, had we not had access to somebody that could verify the accuracy of that statement, how awful that would have been. Yeah. <laughs> I hear about that a lot with, I hear that a lot with, with tattoos. So, yeah. So, you know, we talked a lot about how we can make our app good for our users, but you know, one thing I've been thinking is, you know, what about, what considerations do we need to think about when we're like having input from uh, a multitude of people in mm. different languages? I mean, obviously the first thing I can think of is like, let's record what language that they're using 
when they send this input back. So that's kind of linked. So we have a good idea that maybe this is Italian. Are there any other considerations that, you know, we should be thinking about on input? That's a good one because I tend to, like, I have a few apps and they're strictly English apps. Like they're set up for, for localization, but they, I don't have any other translations available for them. And one of them is an app, which is a, a community app. People can submit drink uh, drink recipes, right? Like, so there's, you have a, mm-hmm. you're at a bar and you have all these different drinks and like all the popular ones are in there and it's all in English. And I've actually talked about this with my significant other. It's like, what if we wanted to support multiple languages? What would we have to do? And the best thing that we thought of was actually have um, for ne- like, you know, a separate database that's just for each language. But then it's like, that becomes a pain because then they'll never be in sync. And mm-hmm. so I'm not sure like the best way to handle it. Cause can you imagine having an app where you have people from all over the world contributing to it, contributing content to it? And how do you translate that to store and how do you translate that back? And I don't have a good answer for that. Yeah, That's You want all- them to be linked. Right. So it's like, yeah. if you're, you know, cause you might have a second language where you're not that proficient, but you know, maybe you're looking at that by default to get to see the widest range. And they say, Oh, this is also available in my language. So you want to be able to like switch the language and still see that same drink. Yeah. And so, yeah. And so in in situations where you're controlling the content, it's so much easier, but in Mm. a situation where you have an app where other people are contributing content, Oh man, that to me, that's like equivalent to the date time issue and time zones and crap. Like that's so difficult. So we, I, I just, even in thinking about it, I became paralyzed. I'm like, this is so big of a problem and it's not an easy solution. And it would take some qu- quite, quite a bit of time and, and thought and architecture, I think, <laughs> to, yep. to, if we wanted to have them all in sync. But if we didn't care uh, if they were in sync or not, then we would just have separate databases per language. And they, the content would be specific to the country that they're or the, the language that they're targeting. But I don't know. Okay. Any other considerations? Any last uh, comments, questions? No, oh, just I'm, I'm really happy you guys asked me to come back. <laughs> this is the last time. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, I'm totally kidding. Uh, okay, so let's move on. So, Carl, what do you have? You have like a, a, a lot of dev yeah, tips. Yeah, I have right? a lot of dip, dev tips, <laughs> but like a few of them are short. So one thing I noticed that if you use OneDrive and you have like a code file synced up in there, like a JS file, there's IntelliSense in OneDrive. So if you have like a person object that you've defined, you can do like person.firstName and it'll show you when you hit that dot, just like regular Visual Studio or VS Code. So it must be using uh, Monaco. It must be. And the thing is, you know, it's like, you know, if you're not expecting it. Oh yeah, that's Monaco. If you're not expecting it, it's pretty awesome to see. Yeah. So, um, I don't do, I don't know if we talked about on the show, we should have, but, um, so that editor that's in there is you can use it. So it's open source now. Mm -hmm. So it was, like I said, it was Monaco. Actually, I think we did talk about on the show. Um, so, so originally there was this thing called project Monaco and then it was basically, you know, visual studio on the web. And then not many people used it, I don't think, uh, but it was awesome. So they put it, they used, uh, you know, Electron Shell to put that into VS Code. Um, and and then the funny thing is, then people people were like, well, I want to be able to use that on the web, uh, but like embed in my own applications. So then, you know, that got split out into its, or it got... Uh, packaged in such a way that you can include it in your in your own project. And actually, my project, um, we're we're working on integrating in this editor. Uh, but yeah, I mean, so it's just a portable editor that works that works everywhere and is and is really awesome. Yeah. The next uh, item that I have is on GitHub. Microsoft has published some UWP UI basics. So if you're looking to make like a UWP application, you know that's a, an application that can hit big Windows, phone, Xbox, IoT. Uh, but you're not used to XAML or the UI and how that works. They've got a nice uh, example that shows, you know, how to use XAML, how to do a basic layout and how to get an adaptive UI. So how you can just basically take that one UI that you've written and make sure it looks good on a small phone screen, on an IOT setting, maybe even on a big Xbox, you know, 70 inch TV. Um, so check that out. And also the last one is an iPad app. And it also works on the iPhone called Continuous. So you can write C-sharp and F-sharp uh, on your iPad. Um, they've got a bunch of examples on there using like Xamarin forms and being able to just, as you're typing, being able to get a little bit of IntelliSense and uh, 
you can actually run the code right away as soon as you're done typing it too. So that's actually- Can I say something about that? Yeah. Can I yes. say something about that? Okay. I was at .NET Fringe and Scott Hanselman did the keynote there and he actually- uh, talked about this app and it is freaking phenomenal. I mean, the fact that you can <laughs> program C sharp, F sharp on your iPad. And as you're programming it, the change that you're, you're making is, is being represented, you know, in the preview It's it's amazing. And so, and to that point, I actually met the developer in person. So Frank Kruger showed up there and I absolutely had the biggest geek freak out. I was like in awe. I was like, oh my God, I cannot believe I'm meeting you in person because I've used, you know, the portable class library that he developed for SQLite on, you know, to, uh, in Xamarin. So like mm. SQLite.net, his PCL, I've used it so many times and I see his name all the time. So and then seeing that he released this app, which was amazing, like it's it's brilliant. If you have an iPad, download it, please, and just watch the magic because it is awesome. Uh, but then to meet this him in person after he just released this amazing app and be able to say to him in person, like, "Wow, you are awesome. This is great." Oh uh, yeah, I okay, I'm done. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> well, yeah. So I'm looking at the reviews. Yeah. This thing kind of fascinates me. Uh, I can run an ID on my iPad and iPhone that performs better than Xcode does on a Mac Pro with 12 cores and 32 gigs of RAM. And he's selling it for 10 bucks. Well worth the $10. Um, I paid for it. I've oh used it God, on my iPhone already. Um, yeah. it, it, it's great. Well, it seems, it seems kind of like, it can't be that great on an iPhone, right? I mean, it, it, I, I would think you'd want good. an iPad, he, right? He really yeah, promotes yeah. it for the iPad, but it still yeah, works yeah. good on the iPhone. You just got the iPhone for free, right? So I like, can you, I mean, can you do the whole app on this thing? I mean, like, like really, I, I would maybe have a hard time doing a whole app, but if you have like yeah. a, you know, a CI environment where you're, you know, you can make some edit it edits. It, it's great for even like, you know, not small, but not medium, that kind of in between code changes. Like if you need to fix some bugs, if you want to add another feature while you're out on the road, you don't have to lug around a laptop with something well, like this. It's great. And you can make all those changes on your phone, you know, you check it in. That that would be mm -hmm. great. Yeah. Cause Frank says, I resolved to use my iPad pro for software development in 2016. He said that, uh, December 31st, 2015. And then he came up with this app. So like, uh, this is very interesting. I might have to, you know, what? I, I'm working uh, a great Xamarin app. I'm wondering if I have to borrow an iPad. A great uh, question for him is, you know, here. once he got the initial proof of concept done, did he develop it on an iPad? <laughs> well, yeah. why don't you get him on the show? Yeah, we probably should talk about it. Yeah. If only we had, if only we had some kind of like development podcast. Oh, wait, we do. <laughs> <laughs> he is amazing. And I'm telling you to talk to him is awesome. Like, Oh, I couldn't shut up when I was talking to him because he's he's so easy to talk to. He's great. Yeah. Yeah, he's awesome. And the iPad Pro is just it's too too expensive, but uh yeah, I don't know. I cuz I I'm working on a Xamarin app and it is like a huge hassle. If you can sit there and, you know, cuz I already have I have this for people that are on the video. I have this nice keyboard that can hook up to multiple computers all at the same or you know, multiple devices at the same time. It's actually a really nice keyboard. Um yeah, if I could if I could do that for for development, that would uh, that would make things interesting. So I wonder what that's actually like. Anyway, we're spending way too much time on this. Sorry, um, I'm so, sorry. No, 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 it's not your fault. It's Carl's fault. Uh, <laughs> so we'll have a link to that in the show notes. So we'll we'll have to get him on the uh, on the podcast. That would be awesome. That was a great idea, Laurie. So that uh, that totally made the whole whole uh, um, having you on worth it just for just for that <laughs> thought too. Yeah, just, just for that little nugget of information. You yeah. need to be the MS Dev Show uh, consultant. No problem. Yeah. Uh, okay. So what I need you to, I actually, most of my cards for the game that we play are at work. So I'm going to pick a number for you. Um, let's see, actually pick a number between two and four. Four. Okay. Four. Uh, would you rather eat three raw clams covered in grape jelly or a cup of strawberry yogurt and tuna fish mixed together? I would say the strawberry yogurt and tuna fish. Yeah. The clams that just grosses me out. I don't know. Yeah. I mean the the yogurt and tuna like. I think you can. I think you can mix it in enough that you shot. won't notice it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. you mix it in enough, it, you won't even notice. Yeah. yeah, and I like tuna. I think tuna's good. Yeah, yeah. Okay, Carl, you're picking number two. All right, um, two then. Would you rather have a jar of jelly beans that never goes empty, or a magical stereo that can play any song you want to hear? Well, I already have the second one, so I'll take the the jelly beans. 
Okay. Do we already have this one on the show? No, but you know. Okay, I'm crossing I, it off. You know, I subscribe to to Groove. I have Pandora. Um, you know, there's a lot of other services that you get free trials for all the time, so I can already listen to any music I want. Okay. Okay. Fair enough. Fair enough. Yeah. Were these questions devised in like the eighties? Like, are it's they meant for dated, children. Maybe? It's meant for children. <laughs> yeah. But it doesn't have. Um, oh, here I I do have the instructions here. So rules of play. So let's see. Copyright. 1998, 2004, and 2007. So it was updated in 2007. <laughs> oh, yeah, I don't think okay. Pandora was around back then. No. Yeah, that was like when the iPhone was like, you know, came out that year and we weren't sure like if that was going to be a thing or not. <laughs> so Lori, where can people find you? Uh, Salola.ca is my website. Um, I'm also part of the Western Devs group, so you can go on to westerndevs.com and see me there. I participate in their podcasts on a regular basis, so you'll hear my voice a lot more often. Um, and yeah, just on Twitter, Lori B. Lalonde. Okay. Yeah. And um, we're going to have a link to, to a whole bunch of different things, but we'll link to your Evolve session because I, again, I just, you were just like super confident. I loved it. You were awesome. Thank you. Carl, where can people find you? You can find me on Twitter at Carl Schweitzer. Okay. And you can find me at ytechie.com or on Twitter at twitter.com slash ytechie. So Lori, thank you so much for coming on again and, uh, and talking to us about localization and globalization. And of course you are welcome on the show anytime. 